it, uh, our study that we've been looking at is on the glory of God. Oops, for some reason, oh, it's because I don't have a plan. There we go. Our study that we're looking at has been on the glory of God, but we're looking at the glory of God in terms of the life of the church. Uh, we did kind of introduce this by looking at examples of God's glory in the past, but we're looking at it with regard to the life of the church. Just, uh, we've, we keep going over this, but that idea of glory meaning reputation or weight or significance uh, in different ways like this. And this is what we've been talking about, uh, recognizing God's significance, his weight, his reputation in these different situations that we get to live in, that we get to deal with. And today we've been talking, uh, we've been going, to, we're on the same outline, by the way. I didn't print any more out because I figured you probably already had a copy of this bright orange outline. And we went through two sections on it. We're on the last section today, but this has been about suffering. But we're coming down to the last part on this. And uh, uh, what we're going to be looking at in connection with this, I put this slide in here at the last minute this one right here this is the one and I put it in the wrong place I just realized in Hebrews 9:27 Hebrews 9:27 the apostle Paul writes inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment in other words that's it's this is the norm 6000 years of human history on this planet the death rate has been almost 100% now, the reason I say almost 100% was because there was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Elijah and a man by the name of Enoch, both of who went without seeing death. But that is two people out of billions of people that have lived on the face of the planet. The death rate so far has been 100%. There is the possibility, it's not the theme of our study today, we may be the generation that lives when the Lord comes back, and we may go without seeing death. That, that is possible, that we could be the ones that he comes back for his church, and we go. Just think of that. All the believers scattered around Royal City, all of us go up and we join all the other believers that are coming from Oregon and from Mexico and South America, and we're all heading north and we join them from Europe. Just think of this cloud of believers. And that's why Paul pictures it. We're clouds. We're caught up not into the clouds, which I don't know if we have any out there today, but we are caught up in clouds of believers, those that are resurrected that have gone before us as well as those that are living. So there will be a generation that will go without seeing death. And I trust that we live as though we are that generation. But if it is not the Lord's plan that he, that the Lord returns, that the Lord Jesus Christ returns for us prior to that day, we're all going to die. And it's one of those things that makes us uncomfortable. I was thinking today, I mean, we've been praying for the last couple of weeks for Gordon's brother-in-law and he passed away yesterday. And now this young man, um, this, the son of, of uh, Bart's friend, we death is is something that I, probably every one of us around here and sometimes it comes slow and we can kind of see it coming and sometimes it just comes fast and i think probably most of us if we've watched and been around death most of us are probably thinking i want to go fast i want it fast i want i don't want this long drawn out ordeal this is the way people normally are but what if it is an ordeal? What if it's something that you know this is coming and there's this stretch of time? How can you face death? As a believer, we're talking to Christians. Unsaved people have no hope. People that have not believed in Jesus Christ, they don't have this kind of hope. So they're, they're in a position where they can't think the way Peter's going to encourage us. And I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to uh, John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We're going to be here Wednesday night. Uh, we're looking at some other things in Wednesday night, we'll, although we'll hit this. But in John chapter 21, we're going to go to verse 18. John 21 and verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to gird yourself, dress yourself, put a belt on and all of that, and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will gird you 
and they will bring you where you do not want to go. Now this he said, this is John's commentary now on what Jesus is saying. The reason John can actually say this, John does know the fact. He's lived long enough to even have, have had knowledge of the fact having happened. But he's walking there. We're going to see him in just a minute. He's walking there with Jesus, these two guys, Peter and John, who we see quite often in the Gospels. And they're walking together. And, and uh, John fills in. Now this he said, signifying or indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. Does anybody know historically what we're told or how we are told that John died, or uh, Peter died, excuse me? Crucified. Crucified. They stretch, that's what it means. He's girded and he says, and somebody else, will. they will stretch out your arms and they will take you where you don't want to go. It's not like Peter sees a cross up there and goes, hey, I'm 80 years old and I get to hang on that cross and die. Woo! He's not doing that. He's being taken where he doesn't want to go. He doesn't look forward to that, hanging on the cross. It's not like it's something that he's going, oh, this is, this is going to be a cakewalk. It's hard. We, we, we didn't really go over a lot of this uh, recently when we were talking about the death of Christ in, in John 19 on Wednesday night. But crucifixion was something that it, it had been around from Old Testament times, but the Romans perfected it as a form of death by torture. Death by torture. Because if you were a reasonably strong individual, some of those people could hang on that cross for up to three days before they just became so exhausted that they actually couldn't hold themselves up anymore and they died of suffocation as everything was pulled up like this and they just couldn't breathe anymore. And I'm not trying to gross anybody out or freak anybody out, but this was the nature of crucifixion. I think most of you probably heard very graphic portrayals of that. We don't need to do that. But as he's talking about this here, Peter's going to go through that. Now, my wife down here, I heard her add one other detail, and that is that when they took Peter, this is, this is we're, we hear this in church history. The Bible doesn't tell us this. The Bible tells us it was crucifixion. It doesn't use the word crucified, but it's, it's a death where your arms are stretched out. Okay? And that matches church history. But then there's also a detail that occurs in a little bit of church history that says, he says, I am not worthy to die as my Lord. I want you to be crucified upside down. And we don't know if that's actually what happened, but some of you maybe have heard that, that account. And whether that is true or not, we don't know, but we do have it recorded in church history. The one thing uh, one of my professors pointed out in seminary that maybe the Romans knew, maybe they didn't know, but if you hang upside down very long, pretty soon you black out. The person is more not designed to be on our head, okay? Not for a length of time, especially when you're hanging on a cross. Whether that happened or not, we don't know, but he's crucified. And it says, by this kind of death. But I want you to notice in the middle of, this is why we come to this passage. We're not here just to talk about death. It's the fact that it says in verse 19, now this, this is Jesus, what Jesus had said, that he, Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And this is what kind of made, this is why we're looking at this topic today. Do we ever stop and think that if, if, if it is God's will for us that we die? I don't know. God didn't give me a calendar for my life. He gave me a broad calendar that says, hey, you, you can believe the gospel and someday you're going to be with me. But the in-between, he didn't fill in those details so that I can, let's check my day planner. Oh, I, I'm not scheduled. I'm not going to go to the dentist next week. <laughs> I'm going to die before then. Or, oh, no, I, I'm not going to make that doctor's appointment. Christ is coming back. The rapture is happening on Thursday. No. He didn't give me those details. He didn't, did he give them to you? No. He gave, us the, he gave us some great details about the future, but he doesn't tell us about all the in-between except what we've seen over the last two weeks, that part of his will for us, and one way that God is glorified, is that we suffer. And you don't have to go out and look for suffering. That's, that's one of the things I think we're talking about. These families here that have lost people that we were praying for, it's not like they were looking for that. Suffering finds you. But I agree with Leslie. Probably most of us go, well, I've suffered a little bit. But we, then you read and you hear stories about other people and you're thinking, I didn't suffer like that. 
Nobody has ever broken down my door in the middle of the night and drug me out into the street and beaten me up for my testimony. They have not taken me away and hauled me across country. I remember way back in the 90s, we watched a, a film about three pastors in Russia that were arrested. And they were taken and they were sent off to a work camp in Siberia. And they were there for over 10 years, simply for being pastors. They weren't revolutionaries. They weren't trying to rebel. They're simply just trying to teach the word and lead people in prayer. And they were hauled off. Their wives were allowed to come see them one, one day a year to come visit them. And then that would involve, from what I remember, they had to stand at the fence. They stand at the fence. They, you know, so what do you do? You can put your fingers through and you can touch each other's fingers like that. Maybe you could kiss through the fence, but you're just there and you get to spend a little bit of time with them. They're a family. They're, but their families weren't allowed to come, just, just their wives. And I think, I, I don't know what that's like. I don't like to even worry that that might happen. Could it happen? Oh yeah, it could change overnight. But what, what John is adding here is that Peter was going to glorify God. He's going to say something. His death, how he goes through death, how he faces this, is going to say something about God's reputation, about his confidence in God in this regard. So, for some reason, my I'm not for sure what's going on here. Let me shut this off and start it again. I don't know. <laughs> Strange things are happening. Anyway, we'll forget it. You guys are just going to have to listen. No fancy stuff in the background. Maybe it'll come back, but it's just gone for the moment. So I want, to I want us to go with this information. And I want to go, well, let's look at one other quick thing here because uh, I do think this is, this is interesting. When he gets done saying this uh, in verse 19, um, let's read verse 19 again. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Now, the importance of the follow me statement here is usually when we talk about following, when Christians say, I follow Jesus, and we've got, all, you know, we got lots of songs. It's like, I've chosen to follow him and I follow him. But we did this study a number of years ago. We've done this a few different times. The Bible never uses the word follow in a metaphorical sense where you are following Jesus. Do you know never does Paul or Peter or John ever say that you are following Jesus? I remember teaching this once in the adult Sunday school class several years ago when Josh and Faye were here. Josh comes up and he goes, I'm going to have to totally change the way I think about that. He says, that was incredible. Because he always used that follow Jesus language. But the Bible doesn't use that. When it talked about following Jesus in the Gospels, it literally meant that Jesus was going from Jerusalem up to Galilee. And guess what? If you were interested in him, you walked behind him. And you walked with that group of people that were around him. There was more than just 12 disciples. There were some ladies that followed them around. There were other people. We know at one time that there was many disciples. At one time he sends out over 70 disciples. So there were a lot of people that followed him. But I want you to turn, flip back in your Bibles to John 13. John chapter 13. And when you get to John chapter 13, I want you to go down to... I want you to go down to verse 33. John 13 and verse 33. John 13, 33, it says, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Then he gives the new commandment. As I've told you before, I kind of think these guys totally missed the new commandment because Peter seems to be stuck on the fact you can't go where I'm you can't come where I'm going. And Peter doesn't even listen to the new commandment, I think. Because the, the minute Jesus stops as you know those those people somebody's talking and they're waiting just waiting for their voice to stop okay now they jump in and say it so immediately peter's like said to him lord where are you going and jesus answered where i go you cannot notice follow me now see they'd follow jesus all over for nearly three years but he says i'm going someplace you can't follow but notice the the, the key word in there you can't follow me now but you shall follow later 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And a lot of us think, well, Peter's kind of, uh, you know, he's a blowhard here. He's, he's, oh, he's full of himself. But you know what happens? When you get that entourage, that, or not entourage, when you get that, that group of soldiers that come to the garden to take Jesus in the garden, and you've got 11 guys and Jesus, and you've got, it, remember, uh, we're told they came out with, a, uh, John tells us, a spirea of Roman soldiers in addition to the temple police. <coughs> now, if he re- literally meant the spirea, that's 600 soldiers. And we think, why would they take 600 soldiers to take one man? Well, what is Jesus being accused of? Rebellion. He's a traitor to Caesar. He's claiming to be a king. This is what the Jews have come and said. He's a king. He's threatening Caesar. They took that seriously. Well, if you don't know any of the history of what was going on in Jerusalem in the time that Rome ruled them, Jerusalem had been a burr under Rome's saddle. And there had been rebellions, and there had been these isolated incidents. And so they had not just a few soldiers in Jerusalem, they had a lot of soldiers in Jerusalem, enough to have at least a spirea, 600. And whether they sent them all out or they sent out 25, we don't know. I'm just going to go with the fact that John said they sent a spirea. I'm going to say he sent out 600 soldiers to take this rebel. And in the face of all these guys, even if it's 25 guys, along with the temple police, reaching in and pulling out your sword, (laughs) you got to go, Peter, this is kind of stupid. What are you going to do? Get two or three? And then they're going to take you down. It's even more stupid if there's 600. So Peter does that. So when Peter makes a statement, I know we look at that and go, Peter, really? But no, I think Peter really, at that moment in time, he, he really was in a position where he said, I'd be willing to lay my life down. And then Jesus talks to him about the cock crowing, which is not the main point. But he does say, you're going to follow me later. And this is exactly what we have in verse 19 of chapter 21, John 21, 19, when Jesus says to him, now follow me. And I don't think he means right in this moment, right now, follow me, Peter. I believe he's talking to Peter in terms of what Peter is going to do when Peter faces death. Which is going to be quite a few years. Just to put this in perspective, this is all happening about 30 AD. 30 AD. You do timeline from your angle. 30 AD. Peter dies about 68 AD. 67, 68. So you do the math on that. What is that? 37 years, maybe? So you go, well, that's, that's, that's a little bit of time. But think of 37 years later, it begun, begins to become real to Peter, and we're going to see this in just a minute, that this death that the Lord had told him about earlier is actually going to come to fruition. And he is going to follow the Lord. He's going to follow the Lord by actually going to a crucifixion like his Lord did. So let's go over to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. I read all the way through chapter, chapter 1 last night before I went to bed, and I read through this yesterday again as I was going back over all these things, and there's part of me that just wants to go through all this, but you know what? Tim gets distracted, so we're going to try to stick with the main thing that actually happens uh, in this context. And let's go up to uh, verse 12. Second Peter, or down to verse 12. I was up down below there. So Second Peter 1, verse 12. Therefore, this is Peter, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know and have been established in the truth which is present with you, or I would say the present truth. And the reason I think the present truth is important because what Peter is saying, it's the truth for the now time. It's not for the truth for those people that lived under the law. It's for the people that are living now. Peter ends this letter with a classic Christian verse. 2 Peter 3.18, grow, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's present truth. If you would have gone back into the time, let's let's say even five years before Jesus Christ died. So we're during the gospel period, sort of. You would have gone back there and said, grow in the grace 
and the experiential knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, people would have gone, even believers would have gone, what are you talking about? Much less if you would have gone back to the time of Elijah in the Old Testament, or the time of David, or the time of Moses. They didn't understand grace in the way that you and I understand grace. Grace as we know it, John tells us in his opening verses, Grace is something that Jesus Christ brought. Now, there was grace in the Old Testament, but it, we, they didn't understand it the way we did. So he says, I, I'm going to keep on reminding you of this present truth, even though you're established in it. I like that. I ought to make that my pastoral life verse. Because uh, there's some of you in here. I'm going to look around. Stan and Linda, Gary and Leslie, Josh and Dwight, and my wife. How do I pick them out? Because they've all been here as long as we've been here. We've been 32 years. And you, you've all been here during that time. That whole time. Okay? You've been here all during that whole time. And in there. Oh, Carol. I'm sorry. I forgot Carol in there. Okay? Yeah. In fact, we're partly here because God used Carol <laughs> to connect us. Anyway. But, but we've been here. And so there's things I teach here that you probably are like, oh, we, we've heard Tim teach this. Like, 20 times, 30 times, because there's a point at which the things you're teaching, you're going back over and you're reviewing. Maybe you're bringing something new to it. Maybe you're just doing it all over again. It's the same thing. But Peter says, I'm going to keep reminding you, even though you know it and are established in it. And it's, it's not like you guys kind of get it. You know, I can do first grade level math. I can do first, first grade level present truth. But don't take me on to anything for high school or college level. That's too much. No. He says, you're established in it. You guys are, it's, it's almost like Peter's saying, you guys are doing graduate level present truth. He says, you're established, but I'm going to keep reminding you. Now, then it goes on. And I consider it right as long as I am in this, and we have this word dwelling that he uses in verse 14, but it's the word tent, in this tent, to stir up, to stir you up by the way of a reminder. I'm going to keep stirring up your minds. I'm going to keep stirring up your minds. I'm going to stir, keep making. I'm going to keep making you think of things. In fact, you know one of the benefits of people teaching stuff. When I sit and the rest of you teach or the rest of you share things, I learn stuff from that. I got struck last week. This has been running through my mind all week after last Sunday afternoon when Josh walked us through the way Paul ends all his letters and then ends Hebrew. And he always says in them, the grace of God is with you. The grace of God is with you. And I would, I've been stuck thinking, you know what? I think we need to new, introduce a new way of saying goodbye to believers. When we leave them, we ought to say, hey, have a great day. And the grace of God is with you. Because do we all need to be reminded of that truth? That really, really stuck in my mind. And yet, how many times have I read that myself over the years? So he says, I'm going to keep stirring up your, your mind. But in that word, in that verse, the New American Standard says, as long as I'm in this dwelling, and I pointed out that that is the word tent. And most of you, if you've been around me any length of time, you know that my wife and I and the girls, when they were growing up, we have camped. I grew up camping. I grew up camping in a super heavy canvas tent. I remember one time my dad telling me as we were getting ready to go, it's time to put the tent in the trunk. Could you go get it out of the garage? And it always smelled musty, you know, because it sits in the garage all winter long. And now we're going to go on our two-week camping trip, you know, with a big bag of aluminum poles. <laughs> You can get those out there, and then you got to pick this thing up. And I remember when I was finally old enough that I could actually pick that up and kind to get it to the trunk, because that thing was a heavy beast. But then Peg and I, we moved on to the lightweight stuff. And you've got these tents, and you go and you stay in these tents. And there was a part of me as a kid that I enjoyed camping. But inevitably, most of the time, not every time, but almost every time we camped, there was something that always happened, and it was called rain. In fact, one time my parents tell me in, in uh, the Black Hills of South Dakota, we had a rainstorm, which I remember waking up and hearing it thundering and pouring, but, they, but the winds were so hard, it snapped one of the poles right over me, and it came down, it was laying on top of me, and I'm just sleeping through the whole thing, and my dad gets out there sopping wet and has to try to take a uh, 
uh, you guys don't need all the story. I could tell you all the story, but, <laughs> but he ends up fixing the tent in the middle of the night, getting soap, sopping wet. And eventually that turns and it kind of falls on me, although I never had to fix a tent in the sopping rain. I remember a time that it, it, we camped like that in a tent and we had to go use the bathrooms because there's no bathrooms in a tent. And I'm going down this thing and going down the walkway and I go mud all down the back of the campground. And it, if you know Tim, Tim's not like a person that loves to dive in the mud a whole lot, <laughs> you know. So it's just, I always had this thing that camping for me was not what other people like. There are people that love that. They just absolutely love that. I like camping at the Holiday Inn Express with a comfortable <coughs> bed and a hot shower. That's my kind of camping. <laughs> Yours kind of, yeah. My wife probably would still be camping in a tent if her husband would go along with it because she, she usually enjoyed it. Oh, she says she doesn't enjoy it. Okay, I always thought she did enjoy it more than I did. I'm done now. Okay, she's done now, yeah. Okay, so all the example about camping, I just bring that in here. He says, because that's the way he looks at this. You're walking around in this body, but it's just a camping trip. Our time. Let's say you live to be 90 years old. Let's say you're like Jewel Crabtree and you pass away just a few days shy of your 99th birthday. Like that. Let's say you live this kind of a really long life. It's still just a camping trip. It's still just a camping trip. It's not your permanent way of living. You're living in a tent. And Paul's, or excuse me, not Paul, but, but uh, Peter says here, verse 14, knowing that soon, now in verse 14, knowing that soon it is the taking off of my tent, even as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. That's going back to that statement in John 21 where the Lord said, they're going to stretch you out and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And Peter says, my, the taking down of my tent is getting close. He knows it's coming near. But you notice, and the, the reason I love this passage here is Peter, it's not like Peter's going, oh goody, I'm going to have to suffer really hard. But remember in the first letter, he was talking about how we respond to suffering and how God's glorified by it. Now he's able to say, you know what? I know I'm not going to be here a whole lot longer. And instead of sitting back and just feeling sorry for myself, instead of me just sitting around pouting or trying to go hide out so nobody will arrest me and I won't ever get crucified, Peter says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep reminding you of the truth you already know and know well. I'm going to keep reminding you again and again and again. That's what I'm to do. As long as there's breath in my lungs, as long as I can actually talk, I'm going to be reminding you of these things. I don't think that that's a bad way to live. I don't think that's a bad way to live. I know pastors... You might think I'm judging when I say this, but I know of pastors and missionaries that they retire, they move to Florida, and they golf. And there's nothing wrong with moving to Florida for the most part. Humidity, okay, my wife and I, we don't like the humidity there, but nothing wrong with Florida, and there's nothing wrong with golfing. But that's what they do. They're not pastoring anymore. They're not exercising their spiritual gift particularly. And I'm strongly of the opinion in Scripture, God gave you a gift at the moment you believed, and he expects you to the best that he enables you to exercise that gift until you just absolutely can't exercise it anymore. You keep serving people as long as you have the opportunity to serve. Like Peter, he had the gift of apostle, so he did a lot of teaching, and he was going to keep teaching and keep reminding them. But maybe your gift isn't. Maybe your gift isn't apostle. Maybe it's not a teaching gift. Maybe you have the gift of baking. Well, there isn't a gift of baking, but there is a gift called service and a gift called giving. And both of those might involve making food for other people. And maybe the food isn't what it was when you were 40 years old. But doesn't mean you can't be providing and helping with something. You get the point? As long as we're here. This is an encouragement tree. God is glorified by how you die. Just with Peter. If he's determined that you can show something about the reputation of God by how you even come into death. Does everybody get that? 
I'm going to look at some. I'm going to look at some other statements here with regard to death that we've looked at several times. But I want you to go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Look with me at verse 16. This is this classic passage on I am fearfully and wonderfully made back up in verse 14. Put together like this. My frame in verse 15 was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully put together in the depths of the earth. Again, a reminder. What you came out with when you came from your mother some of that had to do with, well, it had to do with God taking something from your mom and dad and bringing it together to put you together who you are. But then he says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book, they all were written the days that were ordained for me when there was not yet one. I've shared this verse with other people. I've had people just strongly disagree with me, but I'm saying, I'm telling you right now, David said he knew God wrote down in his book all the days that he was going to be here. So even if you don't agree with it, are there some things that might, from a, from a human perspective, cut it short? Yeah. We know that there are Christians that if, they, if they're disobedient to what God wants and they're causing problems into the body of Christ, sometimes God takes them home, from our perspective, prematurely. They go home early. But... God's already determined our days. Turn with me over to the book of Job. Turn to Job 14. Job chapter 14. Look with me at verse 5. Job 14, verse 5. Since his days are determined, that Hebrew word means to have cut in sharply, like cutting or chiseling it in the stone. It is cut in. His days are cut in. The number of his months is with you. His limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Meaning, one of the other things that Job, and Job predates David by a very long time. By probably, let's see, I'm trying to think. Job is right around 2000 BC and David's right around 1000, so 1000 years. Oh, that's simple math. I had another number that was getting stuck in my head in there for a second. And Job understood that God has actually determined our days. And you don't pass that limit. Well, I'm going to exercise really hard. I'm going to take my vitamins and eat healthy and I will live longer. You know what? You can do all that kind of stuff. You're not going to extend that sin life. The only thing you potentially can do, as we've already said, is maybe be that guy that causes lots of trouble to the body of Christ. And God might take you, again, from our perspective, home early. But there's nothing you're going to do to extend those days. He has cut those, and you're not going to pass one of them. Now, some people look at that, well, that doesn't sound very fair. But the point is, this is God. And God has designed his creation. He's designed all kinds of things about creation. And lots of people find fault with, they look at things and they go, well, that doesn't seem fair and that doesn't seem fair. But we look at it and say, but this is God. And you're looking at it from our perspective. So with that in mind, if you remember that God has determined the length of your days, rather than us going out of this world kicking and screaming, going, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. <laughs> We're going to go, yeah. If... If we come to the point like Peter where we realize the chances of death rather than life are much greater at this moment, although we can always live with the hope that the Lord might come back in these moments before, when we do that, we can actually be like Peter glorifying God and saying, you know what, instead of worrying, instead of me worrying about the fact that, <coughs> that I'm going to die, look at it and say, well, I'm probably going to die. But there's still breath in my lungs. I've still got something here that God has set before me to do. Let's go back over to the uh, New Testament and go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And if we go down... Um, 
Let's go down to verse 14, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Paul writes, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. That's us, right? Is anybody here that's not flesh and blood? Any a spook? Okay, I didn't think so. So this is about us. Children are flesh and blood. He himself, referring to Jesus Christ, likewise also partook of the same. That is, he became flesh and blood like us. He's God, eternally God. But at a moment in time, about 2,000 years ago, he also came down and became one of us. That through death. See, you can't kill God, but we can be put to death, right? We can die. That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of, the, of death that is the devil. Now, how did the devil have power? Well, it's going to go on. Verse 15, that he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's the power of death. I don't think that Satan was killing people. We just saw David and Job both said, God's the one that's determined the length of days. But the thing is, see, we don't know those length of days. We already told you. God didn't send me. I wasn't born with a calendar attached to me saying, hey, Tim's going to live this long. None of you were either. And so the power that Satan exercised, the might that Satan exercised with regard to death, has to do with the fact that he enslaved people with fear. He enslaved people with fear. He used the fear of this death, this time that God's determined, he uses that fear to get people to do things that are outside of what God wants. To waste our time doing things that God hasn't planned for us. But I'm going to do it. And it puts these things in perspective for us. And he says he took that, he took that away. He robbed Satan of being able to manipulate that fear of death. Sadly, there's a lot of Christians that don't understand death. They don't understand God's plan with death, and so there are lots of Christians that do live in fear of death. There are a lot of Christians that do live in fear of death. And just because you know this doesn't mean that you don't have those problems. I'm a good example of that. I know this to be true. Put in a situation where I face death, I'm like, ah, ah, and I kind of go into a horrible, horrible panic situation. This is, I don't do this all the time, this, but this, hap this has happened to me, even though I knew this in a situation. But he's saying, hey, and you know what, by the, by the way, coming back to that, having said that about myself, when I got this verse when I came back and God brought me back and reminded me of what, what he had taught me here in his word, just like he's taught you this, it settled that whole fear thing down and just brought it. Just, I wouldn't say it just like did this, because I kind of at times it kind of, I'd wave up, but I'd come back to these scriptures. Now I'm just going to add a detail on here. without Because this would be a whole other Bible study. But I think one of the things that we sometimes lack when, we, when it comes to these things is I think we sometimes lack an appreciation for who God really is. Yeah, be a believer. He's our Father. He's the God that designed all of this. And we sometimes do not appreciate who He is. And as a result, when we're talking about this whole death thing, remember what, 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 were, what were the last words out of Jesus' mouth when He hung on the cross? Does anybody remember? He says it just after it is finished. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed out his last. I've used this. I just, we just went over John 19, uh, 18 and 19 a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. And I've used uh, Ben Orth as an example of this. Because I'd never, I'd, I'd heard about this, but I'd never watched it until a few years ago. I was helping him with games for VBS down there. And they were talking about trust and faith that day. And so they did a trust fall. And so they had all, you know, all these kids. And, you know, you get six kids and they're all gripping their hands like this. Two, a pair across. You guys know what a trust fall is, right? Okay. And then they'd have a kid that would fall back and they'd catch him. They'd put that trust in him like that. And then I still remember the kids were like, Mr. Orr, look, you do it now. You do it. They wanted they saw, they had to get a couple more kids in there just to make sure because he's a little bigger than these little shavers. <laughs> and they did it. They got it. But here's the, question, here's the question for you. If you don't trust those guys, if a person's going to fall and the person's going to go, ah, at the last minute, what's going to happen? You're on the ground, clunk your head, it hurts, you know. 
when, when can you trust a person in a situation like that with a trust fall? When there's somebody you can trust. Will you, tr you know that that person isn't gonna freak out and let go of the other kid's hand or adult's hand, whatever it is, and let go. Do you remember doing that, by the way, Ben? Yeah. Having those kids do that? Yeah. I've used that example a lot because to me it's a good example of what happens to Jesus. Jesus' relationship with the Father is restored. Because remember when he hangs on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Well, if the Father had run off and abandoned him, then would you trust your spirit into his hands? No. But that's what the it is finished right before there means, that that separation from the Father was over. And so the Son can, can, can trust himself into the Father's hands. And can I just say, I think if you and I have a better appreciation for who God is and, and a confidence in the plan of God, if, if it is God's will that we, are, that we come to the point of death, we can glorify him by being able to say, God, whenever I go, I know you've got me. Whenever I go, I know you've got me. And he doesn't have to join hands with a bunch of other people to hold on to us. It's just like this. Obviously, he doesn't have literal hands, you understand, in that regard. You don't have to fear death. We can face that death. I, oh, I did have one other verse that I want to look at, and I didn't write this one down. This one occurred to me. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and we'll just take a quick look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to go, he's talking about death, by the way, he refers, if you read these verses, if you go back to the first part of this, he talks about our body as a tent, but go with me to verse 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are of good courage, or we are cheerfully confident, he says, I say, and we would prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home facing the Lord. Paul says, you know, you could go back up to verse 6, he says, to be absent from the body is to be up there present facing the Lord. That's what happens. When you die, you don't go into limbo. You don't float around here like a spook. This isn't ghost where you've got unsettled business and you've got to make things right. And No. There's no soul sleep either. When you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And Paul says, you know, we'd prefer that. That's actually what we'd like. I... I've done a lot of funerals. I don't know. I say a lot. I've done, I've done more. I, I, every time I do one, I'm always like, God, I hope I never have to do another funeral. And by that, I'm, I'm always saying, I hope the rapture happens. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, but I've had, and maybe some of you would fill out other details, but I've had the opportunity, the privilege, of watching three believers die. A lot of times people call me and say, hey, so-and-so died. Would you be interested? And I, you know, I didn't see the person die. I maybe knew that they were a little bit sick or that something was there, but I didn't, I didn't know the detail, all the stuff. But I've had the privilege of watching three people go home. Iona Richardson, some of you still remember Iona that was in here. And uh, Peg and I went down. She, she couldn't be at home anymore, so she was staying with her daughters in Hermiston. And I remember Peg and I went down there and sat and visited with her, sat in the living room. She got a little chihuahua sitting up on her shoulder looking at her, just shaking, you know, chihuahuas doing. We visited and visited, just had a great visit with her. We come back, I don't know what it was, two weeks later maybe? Something about two weeks later, maybe three weeks later, going to visit her. And in that time between her sitting in a chair in the living room and visiting with us, she had, with liver cancer, had basically kind of gone into a coma. And she was in a hospital bed in the other room. And Peg brought a hymnal. I brought my Bible. We stood over the bed. We were there for, I don't know, a couple hours. I was reading scripture. Peg read some scripture. We sat there and sang songs. And her daughters had put a little baby monitor over here on the side of the bed so that if there was something, she hadn't been responding to anything, really, other than the, like when they would move her, shift around the bed, she kind of like this. But we're in there singing, and the daughters are sitting out drinking coffee in the kitchen at the table. And they've got the baby monitor on, and we're singing these songs. And pretty soon, Iona, who is laying there, from you, you, you don't know, is she hearing this? We, we're just going to say, yeah, she is. So we're going to do this. And we're singing. And I don't remember what song we were singing. But we're singing a song, and pretty soon, she's there going, mm, 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 mm. 
and her daughters come out and her daughters are crying and say, that is the first noise we've heard out of our mom in several days, other than when they would shift her in bed. She was hearing this. She never once, from the first time she called us and says, I have liver cancer, there's nothing they can do about it. First time she called and told us, she never said, I am doing everything I can. I'm fighting this. I'm, she was always like, this is what God's plan. And she was a testimony to people here in the church while she was here, and then a testimony to her daughters. Joan Woodall had cancer that recurred. It didn't, it, didn't, she, it moved into her bone. And you guys have all heard me tell the story. I think seriously one of the best Bible studies I've ever had the privilege of doing was two weeks before Joan went home and she is laying on her sofa and Woody's in his chair and I'm sitting over here and she's got questions that she wants to know. She's thinking when she dies she's going to be in a box laying out there in the Pioneer Cemetery laying out there waiting for the Lord to come back and she says I'm claustrophobic and I said Joan you're not going to be in the box that's the tent. You are going to be with the Lord. And she was like, in this pain, she's like, oh, this was so great. She was so happy. And we sat and we did questions for about an hour. And, and I can see her. She's moving on that sofa. She is in pain because of the bone cancer. And I said, I think we need to go. I need to just let you rest. She goes, no, no, no. I've got more questions. <laughs> Two weeks out from dying. She knows she's dying. And she's not sitting there going, oh, I'd rather just rest. She's like, no, I, I want to. Bible study. I've got questions. And then Shirley, and I asked Dwight if I could use this. Peggy and Dwight are in their office working on funeral details. I'm sitting out in the other room with Shirley. She's in a hospital bed uh, and she had had cancer of the liver so she was kind of experiencing what Iona was experiencing. But uh, she's sitting there and we're talking and she says, she says, at my funeral, she goes, whatever else you say, she goes, there are people there that I want to hear the gospel. Think about that. Here she's dying and she's thinking, I want people to hear the gospel. Joan told me the same thing. Iona told me the same thing. I want people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I want people to hear that he died on the cross for their sins. He was buried and he rose again and they can be saved by believing in him. And Shirley's telling me this. And then we, she gets, I said, oh, absolutely, Shirley. I said, you should know that that's, that's what we'll do. And then she goes, what are you going to teach on this Sunday? And so I started talking to her about what we're going to teach. And pretty soon she's over there and she kind of closes her eyes and her head kind of relaxes. And I quieted down thinking, oh, she's going to sleep. And this is what I see. She, I, she's, this is the way she's laying. She goes, I'm still here. Keep on going. <laughs> if you guys couldn't hear me. I'm still here. Keep on going. <laughs> but she just says, I'm just really tired. And here she's not sitting there going, I want to lay here and just rest. She's like, yeah, I'll rest. But I want you to keep sharing something. I look back at those and I'm just like, God, you're really incredible. I had the privilege of watching those three women, all of them, face death to the glory of God. I got to watch that. If that's what God's determined for you. And maybe yours, maybe it won't come in the way that it came for those three ladies. But if that is the case, if you're like Peter, then you can do what? You can face death to the glory of God and he can be glorified. And how did God get glory through those women? I got to see God's work in their lives. I got to watch it. I know some of the others. I think the Orths went up there. I think Ben wrote a poem, didn't you? Didn't you write a poem for her? He take it, took it up there and read her a poem. Because for those of you who don't remember, Shirley wrote poems for us and would share them with us at church, and especially at the Christmas programs, things like that. So some, and there's a number of you that got to, to see those things. And I hope others of you have had that privilege of seeing that in the lives of other people. It is great that we live to the glory of God right now when we're able-bodied and we're strong and the breath's moving well in our lungs, but what if it's the will of God that you're going to face death? You can do so. Just as Peter was going to glorify God by how he died, we can also face death to the glory of God. We can say something about his reputation by how we face death. Father, we are thankful for you, the privilege of being those that uh, get to bear about your life and nature in these human bodies. 
that we are your creatures. We are human. We are not God. We will never be God. But you have shared with us your eternal life. And you have shared with us some of your nature. And we can live to glorify and say something about you. We can face suffering showing something about you in daily life. But we also have the privilege, if it's what you've determined for us, to actually live out that life and nature you've given to us as we're facing death. We're thankful for those that have gone before, maybe people that gave up their lives because they wanted people to have the word of God, as we were reminded earlier. Or maybe it's other people that are just concerned for others, even as they're facing death. But whatever it is that uh, you might be glorified, help us to keep these things in mind as we live out these lives, you know what you've in store for each one of us. Not a one of us knows that, apart from the fact that one day we know we will all be with you. And help us to be living every day with that anticipation that this could be the day that your son returns for us. And we are in your presence. And we are there presented before him, not because we were great, but because of him, we are presented holy and without blame. Thankful for his death on the cross for the fact that he lives now and that we can be right with him through all of that. And it gives us this hope. And we thank you for this then. Amen.